0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants.
1: Gabrielle Witte wants to know if germs can live in space. Ah, I believe I can answer that, Captain. Hello, children. I'm Dr. Flox, the ship's physician. I'm from a system called Denobula Triaxa, and I feel very honored to be part of this important mission. Germs. Mm -hmm. They may be tiny, but they are among the most resilient organisms known to medical science. They can survive almost anywhere, on your kitchen counter, under your fingernail, in the vacuum of space. Over 200 million space-dwelling microbes have been catalogued. One of the most virulent species lives inside grains of interstellar dust, a polycoccyx asteris. They can drift in a dormant state for millions of years and still cause a nasty cold. Mm -hmm. I once uh, discovered a, a peculiar colony of spores on a, um, a hull. Thank a, you, a, um, Doctor. Fascinating.
2: Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 2nd, 2020. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing. It's just right.
3: Fade into color color into black and white. Under the bed everything will be alright.
2: Well, with all those germs in space, I guess we'll have to be in a state of eternal vigilance and of eternal expectation that our next set of lockdowns are just around the corner. I wish I was joking. Already our utterly disconnected from reality politicians are planning the next few years of our lives by supposedly preparing for the second and third and fourth waves of coronavirus, complete with lockdowns. It's clear that they've already declared themselves omnipotent rulers with the power to prevent us from living life normally, all at the mere declaration of their whims. Apparently all it takes is a virus and a set of statistics that can be manipulated into any interpretation one might wish to make. So here it is, July already, and the originally promised two-week shutdown in March to flatten some kind of healthcare curve still hasn't resolved itself. No one with the authority to do so is confronting the really big and significant issue of the stupid COVID-19 lockdown and restrictions. That issue, of course, is that our governments have assumed completely unfree and undemocratic powers that have been exercised in a completely unchecked manner. Now, thanks to Antifa and Black Lives Matter, the proof that this state of tyranny transcends COVID-19 is indisputable. Last week on the show, and even on some broadcasts we produced several years ago, we made it very clear how Black Lives Matter is an avowedly racist, fascist, nihilistic, violent and terrorist movement. It always has been from its very inception. This is not a recent development. So here we are, still, living under martial law where a lockdown could be ordered at any time and where arbitrary and irrational social distancing rules can be enforced against any law-abiding individual, but when anyone on the left illegally congregates threatens and uses violence, and openly declares war on individual rights and freedom, while the law either ignores the assault or participates in it. As you might have guessed, I've got a few things to get off my chest today. Following our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archived broadcasts. As always, consider offering your financial support. Everyone who donates $25 or more will receive a copy of our publication, Climate Essentials. Have you seen what's been going on in this country lately? The real story is not about all the crazies, but about the supposed people who are saying, (laughs) in particular, our elected officials. They're the real crazies by putting up with all this and, in fact, aiding and abetting it. Despite the fact that Black Lives Matter is an avowedly racist, fascist, nihilistic, violent and terrorist movement, as I keep saying, it still attracts followers who claim to be against these things. Now I guess that shouldn't be surprising since the mainstream media keeps repeating that Black Lives Matter is opposed to racism. What I want to know is who's for racism? Well, Black Lives Matter, against whites no less, even though most of its supporters are white themselves. In fact, fueling the fires of racism is the very tactic that allows BLM to advocate anarchy and violence with minimal resistance. Destroying the capitalist system and instituting a Marxist form of state control is the openly declared goal of Black Lives Matter's leaders. Quote, I'm not here to peacefully protest. I'm here to disrupt until my demands are met. You cannot rebuild until we break it all down by any means necessary. A response to violence is not violence itself. End quote. And so proclaimed one of BLM's leaders in defense of their violent protests and riots. And what makes the whole spectacle so disturbing is that these open threats of violence and the inherent racism fueling the protests are not being adequately identified and condemned by the leadership of this and other countries. And worse, our politicians and elected officials are not only failing to protect their citizens from violence and the use of force, but they are fueling the flames of hatred and ignorance by never speaking the truth. In fact, they go out of their way to suppress the truth at every given opportunity. Too many good people have become paralyzed by the evil ideology that drives groups like Black Lives Matter. We called it the social phenomenon of original skin last week, the racist version of original sin. This doctrine holds that one can be proclaimed guilty of actions and events that occurred before one's birth, based on the color of his or her skin. How much more racist can you really get, right? Yet this is what BLM's leaders keep demanding. It is pure, unadulterated, hardcore racism, aided and abetted by our own elected but non-representative politicians, and the hatred and racism is all directed at whites, which is the representative color not of skin, but of Western culture the only culture that ever accepted and included people of all races and creeds. Because, you know, cultures and nations are ideas and values that are shared in common, not a collection of DNA and skin color shadings. That's animalistic thinking. The fear of not only being labeled racist, but of losing one's job for the expression of any opinion opposing BLM, creates a psychological terror that protects Black Lives Matter from criticism and moral condemnation. But as we heard commentator Glenn Beck in lamenting the lack of voices speaking out against the chaos, silence is consent. And he's absolutely right. Yes, it is. In that light, let us be reminded of the principle that to those who consent... No injustice is done. And that's one of the reasons why a couple of weeks ago I became somewhat alarmed to see that YouTuber Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson went to attend a Black Lives Matter protest being held in Vancouver, saying that she was going there to support the cause. Now in her mind, of course, she was going to protest the unjust killing of George Floyd, and I suspect, to some degree, she accepted the mainstream media stories about BLM that would suggest the movements opposed to racism. This is the same Laura Lynn Tyler-Thompson whose friendly voice we heard on a few of our own past broadcasts as she marched with peaceful marchers protesting the COVID-19 lockdown a few weeks back. During the course of that march, she engaged several bystanders, both pro and con, on the shutdown, and everyone seemed engaged, friendly, and open to discussion, if not to agreement. Well, that's not what happened at the BLM rally. In retrospect, what happened to Laura Lynn may have been, not a good thing, but fortunate, because it made very clear what BLM is really all about. In our upcoming audio bite, here's Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson in her June 27th YouTube conversation with a friend named Les, who being from Poland, has offered his insights into what he sees developing right here in Canada that parallel what he has seen in his own country. In this conversation she relates her own experience at being called a racist and how that opened her eyes to the evil movement that we call Black Lives Matter.
0: There's a few of us very alarmed. There's a few of us that are going something's really really wrong here and one of the ways uh, that I was uh, really awakened is by actually attending a Black Lives Matter uh, event in downtown Vancouver, and being shocked that there were three thousand people. Suddenly, uh, that's the number that I've been given, and it certainly looked like that. It was huge. There was all of these kids there, and the. The movement in standing up for black lives, that is a beautiful thing. And some of these kids that showed up, Black Lives Matters kids and Antifa showed up, and I have never witnessed the kind of racist remarks to me as a white woman. I have never been spoken to in that way as from those kids, and we're talking teenagers, that are literally being indoctrinated into um, into hatred and I want to show you now a clip of one of the organizers of Black Lives Matter just a moment
4: we uh, are trained Marxists um, we are uh, super uh, versed um, on sort of ideological
0: theories This is the truth of what is behind that and so we've been facing a lot of things first of all in Canada we've had some people come out and say that they don't necessarily believe that there is systemic racism and those people end up losing their jobs for saying that we've had a few people lately that have had high positions and been in media We've had the leaders in in the police organizations, you know, captains and stuff. And they're saying, "You know, I'm not going to say that my police officers are are racist." And we have people uh, that are saying, "No, this is all about race, and we've got to, you know, shut down the uh, establishment so that we can bring a balance." And all of it is very, very, very difficult and very ugly. But for me, personally, because I was born in Uganda, you're from Poland, and so we're two white people, but uh, I can say that I love my um, friends, my people of color, um, African-Americans, uh, Africans growing up in Africa. I really believed in my heart I was African. It's embarrassing. When I walk down um, an airport you know, causeway and I see African people, I'm like waving or smiling, and they're looking at me like, why is that girl looking at me like, what you know but it's because i just love them i feel like they're my people i don't have racism in my heart and i refuse to say that i do and in fact i don't know people that are racist and so this is this is the crux of the place that we've come to now
5: well first of all we have to uh, accept the fact that antifa has hijacked and infiltrated black lives matter movement and and the the sole purpose of of antifa uh, through Black Lives Matter proxies to create an anarchy, and uh, anarchy is is the way of of communists to come to power. When you look at Black Lives Matter right now, the reading from that Antifa uh, 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 script, uh, which is to uh, not just create but propel uh, uh, the a class warfare, and in this particular case, it's a race warfare. None of none of those uh, would have happened if it hadn't been for uh, for them making a, an issue out of it. You are not a racist, I'm not a racist. I've been to 120 countries, and I, I love everybody. I, the, the only reason I go there, because I love the culture, I love the people. I never thought to be a racist unless someone tells me I'm a racist. And you always accuse to be a racist when you talk to them. They call you a fascist and they call you racist because that's the only agenda they have. And if you react peacefully, then they obviously walk all over you and if you stand up to them you criticize them they call you the names and there's no there's no win situation here because their ultimate goal is anarchy so when you create anarchy when you get people to the streets um then you create a warfare you create a conflict and their ultimate goal in the whole uh, enterprise is to create a conflict so that's the whole thing chaos is the way to accomplish the ultimate goal and that goal is to to, to turn the countries, pretty much the whole world, in a state of anarchy, so they can deploy more drastic measures, like military or national guards, and under the pretext of, of putting out the fires and, and bringing peace, they can introduce more drastic measures, like lockdowns, martial laws, curfews, you name it. So if the society cannot govern themselves following the constitutions or, or, or liber- uh, liberties and, and civil laws, then you need the governments and drastic measures to do it for you. So it's nothing but the provocation. So you know it, I know it, a lot of people know it, but if you look at the numbers, those gullible uh, uh, Black Lives Matter supporters, uh, the the whites, mostly people that are so ashamed of their race, which is sickening. So they use whatever Marx uh, tried to do, which is create a a kind of a new society, uh, promoting uh, a working class people. What we see among those young kids, the black kids that jump on us at the rallies and others, is they've been injected or or contaminated with this hatred virus, like a typical uh, Marxist communist propaganda machine, like the COVID-19 that coming up on your cell phone doesn't matter when you uh, search something always comes up as the first news of the day. So once they've been constantly reminded who they are, how oppressed they are, how they should hate you because you're not black, and how racist you are and, and, and fascist and whatever, and, and look how ironically, everything they call you, they are themselves guilty of. This is happening with Democrats in the United States. Everything they come up at Trump with, it's pretty much they've been guilty of. This was the reason why I went to Trump's inauguration in 2017 January because I believed that he can put an end to it. Unfortunately, those forces are so uh, uh, magnified now. That right now, I, I just watched some news from the states. It's quite depressing. They're pumping up the numbers for COVID-19, create another wave right now. I'm not even waiting till September, October. They're doing it right now. Probably want to cancel some of his rallies in the future, and God forbid, next step will be to uh, suggest we should go for uh, mail-in voting, which will be, be-, be definitely the end of Republicans, as we, as we know, it, because mail-in voting will be definitely a fraud.
2: Mail-in voting is an issue that far transcends what that name suggests. A very much related issue is the issue of having to have voter ID, which apparently many white liberals regard as a racist plot preventing black people from voting. Seriously, you'll see what I mean in the last quarter of our show today. While far from being properly understood by the majority, it's becoming clear to more and more people as they encounter or investigate both Antifa and Black Lives Matter, that these groups are carbon copies of each other, one pretending to fight fascism by instituting fascism, and the other pretending to fight racism by instituting racism. Both the tactics and the objectives are entirely consistent with the ideology of the left. BLM did not need to be infiltrated by Antifa, as Les suggested. Both groups have long been on the same page, and are merely sharing the stage granted to them by our incompetent and ideological politicians and civic leaders who share this hatred of white people and the culture of freedom that they have created. When that BLM activist boasted that, quote, we are trained Marxists super versed on ideological theories, end quote, well, that was pretty much an admission of criminal conspiracy, if you ask me. They aren't trained in ideology. They can't even articulate any of their ultimate objectives and have yet to do so. Last week I recommended a half-dozen books by Ayn Rand that would go a long way to help in our understanding of what's going on around us today. Because, as I've been trying to emphasize, these are not unprecedented times or conditions that we are experiencing. Every symptom of the moral pandemic we see around us, from virtue signaling to false accusations of racism, has been a pattern of human behavior since the beginning of recorded history. Trying to make sense out of the gibberish and incoherence coming out of movements like Antifa or BLM will get you nowhere, because nowhere is exactly where they are at. The place to look for answers is to those few people who have identified the problem objectively, taking into account a knowledge of the full context of history, philosophy, and the political forces that are constantly at play. This week I recommend a single book called God of the Machine, published in 1943 and written by Isabel Patterson, a compatriot of Ayn Rand whose wisdom, as found in the God of the Machine, gets to the heart of every era's great conflicts and philosophical debates. And on the topic of Marxism, Patterson was pretty blunt. (laughs) Quote, Misuse of language is the means by which the Marxist cult of communism has done the most serious injury to intelligence. Marxist terminology reduces verbal expression to literal nonsense on the basis of fact and usage. The phrase, dictatorship of the proletariat, is like the roundness of a triangle, a contradiction in terms. It has no meaning. This is specifically the language of fools, for the deficiency which is indicated by the word fool is the incapacity to understand categories and the relation of things and qualities. Marx was a fool with a large vocabulary of long words. Marx's theory of class war is utter nonsense by its own definitions. It has no reference to either class or war if it relates to capital and labor. It is physically impossible for labor and capital to engage in war on each other. In a true class society, Classes are the several layers of a stratified order, and class is nothing but horizontal relative position. Therefore, one class cannot displace another, nor abolish it by actions as a class. Quote. Well, this certainly explains much about what we're seeing around us coming from the left, and why they're unable to articulate either their complaints or their demands. The words they're forced to use make it impossible for them to think. It's like short-circuiting the brain with meaningless concepts. Garbage in, garbage out. But when it comes to groups like Antifa and Black Lives Matter, denying that you are a racist is a losing argument and is irrelevant to your accuser. The racism that Black Lives Matter is talking about has nothing to do with you or your behavior. They call it systemic, over which you have no input or control, but of which you are guilty. Remember, fascism and anarchy are not mutually exclusive. Each represents an absence of government, and each sits on the left. Fascism is limited in its shapes and forms. It exclusively refers to state control over private property and private choice. And that's why censorship can properly be labeled fascist. But anarchy encompasses many states and forms. From what some mistakenly call, quote-unquote, too much government, which is not government at all, but merely state control, to no government in an institutionalized sense, which also implies no rule of law. But the absence of government as such does not mean that there's no one in control. Just ask the folks who suffered through the Chaz experience recently. Now here again, Isabel Patterson on government from a chapter of God of the Machine, coincidentally, entitled The Fallacy of Anarchism. Quote, Government by force is a contradiction in terms and an impossibility in physics. Force is what is governed. Government originates in the moral faculty. The essence of self government consists in keeping promises. Force cannot compel obedience in the social order. What it can affect is death, whether of subject or king. Where force is the arbiter, government ceases. End quote. So that's where we're headed today if we allow this BLM trend of popularity to continue. And remember, Black Lives Matter is not a new phenomenon that just came out of the blue when George Floyd was killed. So bear in mind that what you were about to hear as we go into our next bumper break was aired by Fox News on September 23rd, 2015. Yes, 2015. A year before anyone ever expected that Donald Trump would get elected. and a period that represented Barack Obama's seventh year in office. It featured Fox News' Sean Hannity in conversation with two members of the black community who dared to speak out against Black Lives Matter. And remember again, this was aired about five years ago. Following the tragic
1: death of a nine-year-old girl during a drive-by shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, a woman who grew up in St. Louis became so frustrated with the violence in the black community, she posted this critique to her Facebook page. It has now gone viral. Take a look.
4: A little girl is dead. You say black lives matter? Her life matters. Police brutality? How about black brutality? There is real police brutality out there. I'll give you that. But night after night after night, on channel 4, channel 2, channel 5, channel 30, channel 11. St. Louis Post-Dispatch, murder, 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 murder. Black on black murder. You think the police are out here for fun? You think they're out here, out here for games? They're not going to tuck you in. They're not going to give you a cookie and, and sing you a, a, a lullaby and tuck you in.
1: Millions of views. That clip has gone viral and its message is resonating all across America. Joining us now, the woman behind that video, Peggy Hubbard. Uh Peggy, I wanna I wanted to reach out when I heard that and give you a big hug and say thank you because we are seeing in every big city in America, we are seeing young people that have talent and ability that whose lives are being snuffed out. We don't know their names. We don't hear about their names. And it seems that we're a society that is obsessed with, you know, Trayvon Martin in that case, Michael Brown in that case, and Freddie Gray in that case, but nobody wants to talk about the thousands of lives that are being lost in black-on-black crime. Why do you think there's an unwillingness to deal with this?
4: My take on it, Sean, is to acknowledge this is happening, they have to face their own reality and they don't want to do that. On my way to the station for this interview, I just found out that a toddler was shot and killed in North St. Louis County, the same area that we just lost Jamila Bolton. This is a another child girl who was studying in her house, yes, doing her
1: homework. Yes. You know, yes. Um Peggy one day on this program when all of the Trayvon Martin stuff was going on and the president weighed in on it I actually scrolled the names on the bottom of the screen of people we never heard of that were killed in Chicago dozens and right. dozens and dozens why do these groups focus on the the few instances and there there are examples of of police that do the wrong thing and when that happens they should go to jail but why not the many Where's the protest for the for the young girls like this nine year old girl? You never see that.
4: No, you 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 don't. That's the problem. You know, we want to glorify the criminals, the bad guys. We want to glorify them and give credence to their life.
1: Yeah. I was glad in the video. What contributions
4: did they make?
1: I was glad in the video now you did use some very spirited language that we had to edit out for television. (laughs) uh yes (laughs) no but but you know what it was effective and if we i believe that we're all created by the same god and we're not dealing with a problem and then when anyone brings it up if you happen to be why are you racist for even talking about it it's no because i care about people's lives what is the reaction that you're getting to this viral video now
4: i've been called um uncle tom Ancient mama, uh, the white man's Bedwinch.
3: Good
1: grief. Uh,
4: the the white man's <laughs> part. My French, but that's what I've been called, you know. And it's not a black issue. This is not a white issue. It's a human this issue. Is an, it's a human issue. It's an accountability issue. It's a responsibility issue. Peggy's, That's what it is. They, yeah. they made this about race. This was never about race. This was about right and wrong.
1: Well said. Uh, Peggy, stay right there. I want to bring in Milwaukee County Sheriff. Our friend David Clark is back on the program. Uh, Sheriff, I, I, I think Peggy is extremely courageous. I know you're courageous in what you do. If we love these kids and we want to save these lives, don't we first have to identify that there's a problem that nobody seems to want to talk about?
6: without a doubt Sean first of all Peggy I'm proud of you uh, I got you back on this one if things get too Thank out of sir. hand down there and too hot for you down in the <laughs> St. Louis area you give me a call I'll get you some help down there but uh, very effective messaging Peggy admits the reality of this whole thing I've been saying it uh, all along myself it's the elephant in the room Sean as you know that the especially the liberal mainstream media does not want to acknowledge because it doesn't fit their false narrative about what's going on in the American ghetto 75 percent the problems of the black community are self-inflicted, things like father absent homes, things like uh, drug and alcohol abuse, school failure, failure to stay in the workforce. The other 25 percent are inflicted by the Democrat Party with their modern liberalism, which is conduct without borders. Okay, they reward underachievement, they make excuses for criminal behavior like black-on-black crime, and they. Uh, blame everybody else for the problems that go on within our community. It's a message that our community needs to hear more of. The overwhelming majority of people that live in the American ghetto are good, law-abiding people, but their bo- voice is silenced, and we have to hear from the blowhards, and they're, only, they're one-trick pony. All they can say is racism.
0: And you mentioned all of this agenda of contact tracing, uh, turning this virus uh, with 99.8% recovery into the reason to shut down uh, and create a a more socialist uh, state. And we're all fighting about something that we don't need to be fighting about. And, And yet, you know, we are seeing that hatred that you're talking about. I have never been spoken to in such a disrespectful manner, and and so with such a vile and venom. And I am telling you, you know what scared me this last weekend? Not physically, but I, I sensed that people can be in physical danger. It was mm. the pure hatred coming from the Antifa and BLM mob. The yeah. vile hatred, the very thing that they are trying to say that they're not for. I have never seen that come from the eyes of a teenager towards me in my entire life, Mm -hmm. and now that's happening. Truly, I believe that Jesus is the answer. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and he is the answer for our nation. It's very true, the hearts of man are sick. The the hearts of, of men in Canada, in North America, are sick, and we cannot fall for it. Rather, we preach love. What I did this last weekend, Um, this one young black kid was just very angry at me and this these other white kids were angry and they were just they wanted a fight they were provoking and they wanted a fight and uh you know I just kept especially because being from Africa I looked into this face of this this kid and I think he was maybe 12 13 years old you know and I he was so angry and vile and swearing, like the worst swear words. And I I was just look, I kept looking at him and I kept saying this. I'd say, why? Like why? And I, I would not meet it with uh, with the same hate back. That was my that was my way of reaching right into that situation. And I'm hoping that there are others out there who'd be willing to go to some protests and to begin to show the love and the power that there is in love uh, to combat this but what I'm really concerned about is that if we keep talking about black lives matter like it's really about black lives when it's not it's not about black lives no this isn't about black lives this is about a takeover by Marxists of our young people I'm done with it I'm not going to be silent on this and um, I will tell you something that it takes a lot of courage to to do this I have really had to face that uh, that maybe I don't have the most popular uh, perspective right now because nobody wants to say what I'm saying. And it takes a lot of courage for me to do that, but I'm doing it because I've spent the last two and a half years saying what I think needs to be said in spite of the fact of it being popular or not. I have said what needs and I felt what needed to be said, and I have stood for what needed to be stood for. Because of that, um, I don't have uh, regular work, and I cannot, I either have to be quiet and I can go and work at an established place, I can work in media if I'll be silent on all of these things that are important, but I won't be silent, so this is what I do. I come here and I present my heart and my soul And I thank you from the bottom of my heart because I can see by these comments here today that you loved what Les had to say. And and what he had to say is pivotal for us to understand because of his background. We are going into a place where we are embracing communism, socialism, Marxism by embracing the BLM movement, which at its core is inciting racism now.
2: You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. You know, I really like Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson, and I wish there were more people like her. She's the real thing, and her personal sincerity, courage, and honesty are, for me, rather indisputable. I first met Laura Lynn as a PPC candidate at the PPC convention held in Gatineau, Quebec last summer, and I expected... Not to like her. Certainly not on a personal level, not talking about that because she's totally likable in that way, but politically. You know, as someone who myself does not believe in deities, it seemed to me that this activist Christian who was advocating abortion restrictions within a party that did not do so in its platform, you know, wasn't going to have a lot in common with someone like me. Boy, was I wrong? (laughs) After hearing her speak, and after having featured her on a couple of past Just Right YouTube productions that were recorded at the PPC convention, I found myself in agreement with just about everything she was saying. About gender issues, which is a big one for her, about immigration, about racism, and about a whole host of so-called social issues, not the least of which was freedom of speech. Moreover, when I took a look at all of the other people attending the PPC convention, it was impossible to ignore the incredible racial diversity of the crowd and the candidates, as well as the diversity of religious beliefs among the attendees. And yet here they all were, supporting a common set of values, the values of individual freedom. So when I hear someone like Laura Lynn suggest that quote-unquote Jesus is the answer, I appreciate the sentiment in what she's trying to say. She would like to see the hatred being spewed by a 12-year-old black child turned into love instead. I get it. But I have an issue with that argument when it is being placed into a political context. In suggesting that Jesus is the answer, she's wandered from advocating a value to advocating a belief. And these are two different things, especially when other people are looking at you from the outside. Moreover, thinking in terms of Christians or Muslims or black people or white people is still groupthink. This is a takeover by Marxists, she concludes. Well, let me tell you, most Marxists aren't exactly big fans of Jesus. (laughs) But if the real enemy is Marxists and Marxism, then Jesus isn't going to be of much help. Religion per se is not a barometer capable of measuring someone's political ideology or philosophy. I learned that a long time ago. There are as many quote-unquote religious people on the left as on the right. There are just as many non-religious people or atheists on the left as on the right. And I always find it a bit inconsistent when I hear religious people criticize the left for acting religiously in their zeal. You've heard it, you know, fighting climate change has become a religion. And the person complaining about that, you know to be religious. Glenn Beck falls into this category a bit too. So if your aim is to persuade others to be loving instead of hateful, or to move to the right side instead of towards the left, then there's a danger in citing one's beliefs, particularly without clearly defining those beliefs and the principles on which they're based. But having said that, I would still have no hesitation supporting and joining with others who may not share my own beliefs necessarily, but who do share my values. For any culture to survive, its members must share a common set of values, not of beliefs. And though related, beliefs and values are two different things. Funk and Wagnalls defines a belief as an acceptance of the truth or actuality of anything without certain proof. Something held to be true or actual. As in to believe in freedom. Interesting example they picked. And... They note that belief denotes acceptance with or without proof or strong emotional feelings. Faith is always the acceptance of something not susceptible to proof, while conviction is strong belief arising from a deep feeling of certainty. And they define value as the desirability or worth of a thing. Intrinsic worth, utility, something regarded as desirable, worthy, or right. As a belief, (laughs) standard or moral precept the rate at which a commodity is potentially exchangeable for others, or a fair return in services, goods, etc. Also, the ratio of utility to price, a bargain. End quote. So as you can see, beliefs and values can be either objective or subjective, and can overlap a little bit. Here's what Ayn Rand had to say on values, and I quote, A value is that which one acts to gain or keep. Virtue is the action by which one gains and keeps it. The concept value is not a primary. It presupposes an answer to the question of value to whom and for what. It presupposes an entity capable of acting to achieve a goal in the face of an alternative. Where no alternative exists, no goals and no values are possible. Now I have to stop here for a moment because this is a profound and significant point. If you don't have a choice, then the very concept of values cannot exist. It would be meaningless. Values are about choosing between alternatives, and they determine which of the alternatives will be chosen. Now back to Rand. It is only an ultimate goal, an end in itself, that makes the existence of values possible. Now in what manner does a human being discover the concept of value? By what means does he first become aware of the issue of good and evil, in its simplest form? by means of the physical sensations of pleasure or pain, just as sensations are the first step of the development of a human consciousness in the realm of cognition, so they are its first step in the realm of evaluation. Values are the motivating power of man's actions and a necessity of his survival, psychologically as well as physically. The objective theory of values is the only moral theory incompatible with rule by force. Capitalism is the only system based implicitly on an objective theory of values, and the historic tragedy is that this has never been made explicit. Any attempt to achieve the good by physical force is a monstrous contradiction which negates morality at its root by destroying man's capacity to recognize the good, that is, his capacity to value. Force invalidates and paralyzes a man's judgment, demanding that he act against it, thus rendering him morally impotent. Quote. You know, personal values are difficult to describe or quantify in the way that we describe and quantify other forms of physical measurement. And yes, values are a form of measurement. Not in inches or miles or degrees or even numbers. It's as simple as distinguishing between, say, A higher value or a lower value, or a non-value, or invaluable. To love is to value. To hate is to disvalue. We can value people, things, or even just ideas. But the greatest values cannot be bought, possessed, or exchanged. In the personal realm, that might be one's health, one's family or friends. In the political realm, the greatest values are life, liberty, and property, and above all, individual freedom. As anyone who has lived without freedom already knows, freedom is priceless. That's one of the reasons why so many people from countries like Poland and other socialist or communist nations tend to value freedom more than those who take freedom for granted. It's a hard lesson learned. And it's a lesson that the rest of us should learn without having to repeat history over and over and over again. And here's part of that lesson. If you find others who share your values, but perhaps not your beliefs, Don't let that become a point of division and conflict between you. It isn't worth it. They're on your side. Now, coming up next, on this side of the bumper, an absolutely brilliant and concise analysis of the cult of victimhood. As described by YouTuber Matt Christensen on June 27th, every word of what he had to say applies to Black Lives Matter and goes a long way towards our better understanding of what we're up against. And on the return side of the bumper... Ami Horowitz of Fox News polled a group of white liberals in Berkeley, California about their views regarding voter ID and then followed up with a similar poll of black residents living in East Harlem. What an eye-opener that was. And here again, bear in mind that that particular Fox broadcast was aired on November 3rd, 2016 only five days or so before the unexpected
7: election of Donald Trump. But first, here's Matt Christensen. Our country has a strange relationship with victimhood right now. On the one hand, we're told that our entire system inherently victimizes certain people to the benefit of others, and that we have to fix that entire system to have any claim of justice. But on the other hand, we have people actively seeking victimhood. We have victimization miners desperately digging for it even when there's none to be found, looking to find it in the shapes of knots or the faces of statues or any other inanimate objects that don't actually have the ability to act upon you. In other words, if oppression and victimization are inescapable, then why are so many people actively seeking it out? They shouldn't have to search so hard if it's everywhere and they shouldn't want to if it's so damaging. We're told this victimization is like the plague, but instead people treat it like my precious, like the one ring to rule them all. If oppression is so evil, then why is it so coveted? And the answer is because it holds a lot of power. If a great injustice has been done against you, then a great injustice in response becomes, well, justified. And in a context where you don't even have to show specific injustice done against you personally, you can just claim inherent generic mistreatment by the system itself. What that means is this claim of victimhood is a get out of personal responsibility free card. If you're just the product of a system and not an individual with agency, well then you have no personal responsibility. Everything you do is what the system made you do. Therefore you can exert your will over others with impunity. Through this pathway, this victimhood leads to unchecked power. If certain people are inherent and automatic oppressors and certain people are inherently and automatically oppressed, there are virtually no moral limitations on what the supposedly oppressed can do to the supposed oppressors. It's a formula that twists the moral framework beyond recognition and tosses it out the window entirely and that's a lot of abstraction i know but it's important to consider and understand the philosophy that makes stories like today's possible stories where all morality has been flipped upside down and actual victims struggle to atone for how they've treated their attackers. But this story isn't about justice, it's about power. It's about the total submission of some people to others, the total domination of some people over others, and all concepts of justice and morality are secondary. And that is why this victimhood is so highly prized, despite these claims of wanting to eliminate it. It is a tool to exert power under the guise of justice. It is a tool to exert power without any moral questions asked about the legitimacy of doing so. It is a tool to flip morality itself and abuse others without consequence. And thus it is a tool to be highly scrutinized when used in these public theatrical ways. A genuine victim seeking justice usually asks simply to stand on his own two feet again. A fraudulent victim seeking power usually shrieks demands that you will bend the knee. And we'd all be wiser to learn to spot the difference.
3: I'm Ami Horowitz and I'm here in Berkeley, California to find out if voter ID laws suppress the black vote. Do you have an opinion on voter ID laws? Uh yeah, they're Usually pretty racist and <laughs> they're bad. I think voter ID laws are a way to perpetuate racism. Would you say they're, would you go as far as say they're, they're, those laws are racist? For sure. Do you think it suppresses the uh, African American vote? Definitely. Uh, because they're less likely
7: to have state IDs.
1: Minority voters are less likely to have the kinds of IDs that have been um, described or required.
7: These type of people don't live in areas with easy access to DMVs or other places where they can get identification. You can always get IDs
3: you um, do over the internet. Does that also make it difficult for, for black people in particular? Yeah, you have to have access to the internet. You have to be able to pay an internet service provider for certain fees. Do you think that's harder for black people to go online? To well, I these? feel like
0: they don't have the knowledge of
4: how, of like, how it works. Like, a lot of people have smartphones, but you might not have data. For most of the communities,
0: they don't really know what is out there just because they're not aware or like
2: right. they're not informed. I also think there's a repression of like, black voting with... Um, how they how if you're a convicted felon like you're not allowed to vote and everything and when you look at swing states like Florida that's a huge population of the of the like African-Americans.
3: Now I'm here in East Harlem to ask black people their thoughts on what you just heard. Do you have ID normally? you carry ID on? Yes I have state ID. Do you carry ID? Yes I do. Do you know anybody who any black person who doesn't carry ID? No. Everyone that I know has an ID. Why would they think we don't have ID? <laughs> That's a lie. Why would they say that? Do
0: you have ID? Yes. Because I have my ID and my friends have their ID, so we know what we need to carry around. Everybody that I know have ID. Like, that's one of the things you need to walk around with New York with,
3: uh, ID. Do you know any black adult who does not have ID? No, I don't. Is it a weird thing to even say that? Yes, it is. What is this, some
4: some type of uh, trick candy camera? (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) That's
3: the only thing I brought with me. Legit, yeah. Those are legit IDs. I heard a lot also that um, black people can't figure out how to get to the DMV. Really? that, that does that saying to you? I know it's that. It's on 25th Street. Do you know where the ID, the, the DMV is right here? It's on 125th Street and you 3rd know. Avenue, I believe. You know how to get there? Yeah. Do you have a problem getting there if you have to get there? No. It's. I know these sound like silly questions. You know how to get the DMV? Of course. You know where it is? Yeah. You can get there? Uh-huh. No problem. No problem. Just checking. Okay. And I also heard a lot that black people especially poor back people have no access to the internet can't figure out how to use the internet
0: that's that's a that's just stupidity honestly everybody has access to the internet even a little kid could figure out how to work the internet I
3: had access to the internet for years you know how to use it properly Exactly right? I do it at work so of course I know how to use it Smart. my kids know how to use it they all have iPads iPods whatever your phone has data? Mm-hmm. You can actually unlimited,
4: with, unlimited data. Mm-hmm. I use my phone as a hotspot.
3: What does that say to you for the people who have this perception of like? Um, mm. uh, they're pretty much ignorant. Now.
2: That's what my thought process are.
3: I just think that's ignorant, ignorant. Ignorant. That's the very, word I'm hear Very, very ignorant.
4: ignorant. Very, very ignorant.
3: Does it sound racist for somebody to say that?
1: I, I think it is a little racist because, you know, you're putting um, people in a category and you have no idea what you're talking about.
0: Maybe a little bit of racist in it, but like I said, I think
3: it's more stupidity and ignorance. you judging somebody, like, but you're judging them because they're black, saying that they do not got it. What
4: people are they talking to? <laughs> what are, who are these people talking to?
3: Do you have a problem that if you go to vote and they say, can we please see your ID to make sure you are who you say you are? I are you love po- showing my ID. You have no problem with that? Nope. Would you have a problem if when you go to vote, if they say, could we please just see your ID to make sure you are who say you are? Do you have an issue with that? No. Would you have a problem if there was a rule where you had to show your ID in order to vote? I don't think so, no. Would you have an issue if there was a rule saying you got to show your ID before you vote?
2: No. Are
3: you cool with that? Yeah.
2: Wow. I think that what we just heard says more about the whole black and white racial divide than anything Black Lives Matter has ever said. And I have to tell you, I just cringed when I heard those Berkeley, California folks talk about black people the way that they did. Their views were so explicitly racist to the core, and they seemed so unconscious about it, it was almost embarrassing to hear them talk. And they did it in public. They clearly exhibited no shame in saying the kinds of stupid things that they were saying. But here is the kicker. And think about what we just heard and what I just said. I said that their views were racist towards black people but I did not say that they hated black people because I don't believe that they do. Liberal racism towards blacks is not driven by a hatred of blacks but by altruism and we just heard a perfect test tube example of it. In being altruistic altruists believe themselves to be superior to the people they pretend to help. And that's where the inherent inequality factor comes in. By being altruistic towards someone else, you're elevating yourself above that person, aren't you? But in reality, altruism is a form of selfishness in the negative sense of that word. Negative because they're pretending to be concerned about the welfare of others when that's simply not the case. It's all about them, not about black people. It's all about their virtue signaling, not about virtue. You know the old saying, it ain't so much what people don't know that gets them in the trouble, it's what they do know that just ain't so. Well, those Berkeley folks were a great example of people who know what ain't so. What a contrast to the people about whom they are so ignorant, and yet pretend to know so much. Strikingly, I thought, the folks in Harlem were really reasonable and well-grounded, and above all, they refused to bite on the racism bait. Oh, maybe a little racist in it, but I think it's more about stupidity and ignorance. What people are they talking to? Is this some kind of trick candid camera question? (laughs) I thought those comments were hilarious. They were illustrative of just how disconnected from reality the people who virtue signal the most really are. But here's where the comments made by Matt Christensen and those made by the Berkeley liberals cross paths. And this again from Isabel Patterson. From the god of the machine, and I quote The lust for power is most easily disguised under humanitarian and philanthropic motives. It appeals naturally to people who feel a sentimental uneasiness for the misfortunes of others, mixed with the craving for unearned praise, and most especially if they are non productive. This naive self-glorification turns to positive hatred of any suggestion of persons helping themselves by their own individual efforts, by the non-political means which imply no power over others, no compulsory apparatus. The hatred has a deep motive back of it, for it is true that nothing but the political means will yield unearned public adulation. Most of the harm in the world is done by good people, and not by accident, lapse, or omission. It is the result of their deliberate actions long persevered in, which they hold to be motivated by high ideals towards virtuous ends. This is demonstrably true, nor could it occur otherwise the percentage of positively malignant, vicious, or depraved persons is necessarily small, for no species could survive if its members were habitually and consciously bent upon injuring one another. Destruction is so easy that even a minority of persistently evil intent could shortly exterminate the unsuspecting majority of well-disposed persons. End quote. Many people are both astonished and concerned by the huge number of people attending the BLM protests. How did they possibly organize this giant global collective unity since we're seeing these BLM protests not only in the United States, but in Canada and Britain and other countries around the world? Well, we already know that a handful of self-declared Marxists and outright advocates of violence are organizing the movement. But the people attending are there for as many reasons as there are people. But here again, Isabel Patterson notes that, quote, It is neither joint action nor thinking alike in conscious reasonable terms, which induces collective unity. It is not thinking at all at the given moment or occasion, end quote. Boy, when it comes to BLM, that's an understatement, isn't it? But the reason that collective unity is best achieved under ignorance and not thinking at all is because as soon as people think, they begin to realize that they don't have that much in common after all. Quote, The exercise of intellect and abstract reasoning will lead intelligent men to like conclusions through logical sequences and at the same time develop their individuality. Because thinking is an individual function. Therefore, the collectivist, to attain his objective, the collective society or state, seeks the one type of organization, the political agency, which is directly prohibitory and must stop men thinking. This is the evil interpretation of the dream of power, its perversion into the lust for power of other men, instead of a mastery of nature. Quote. So there's the great irony, isn't it? For individualists, being free to think, is the unifying social and political agent. And here's something I haven't addressed for a while. The notion that individualism and individual rights are some kind of license to do what you please, and it's every man for himself without any regard for the social group or collective, well, nothing could be further from the truth. Individualism and individual rights are social concepts. The alternative to individualism is collectivism. And the alternative to individual rights is group rights. These terms define the basic political constituent of a society or nation. In a collectivist society, identity politics and group rights determine the political constituent. And that's why racism flourishes under collectivism. In a society of individualism and individual rights, it is the individual that comprises the basic political constituent. And as we've learned, the existence of this alternative is what makes the acquiring of values a necessity to our survival and well-being. If we didn't have a choice and the free will to exercise it, values would be irrelevant, wouldn't they? So here are our choices. There are only two, by the way, when it comes to politics. Left or right. Collectivism is on the left. Individualism is on the right. And the critical difference between left and right is that collectivists begin with some never-definable collectivist ideology and then use force to shape human beings and human nature into their mold that fits their ideology. Those on the right, individualists, begin with an understanding of human nature and of nature itself, and then build a system of governance that acknowledges human nature. And in acknowledging human nature, one always arrives at the conclusion that freedom is the foundation of human nature. Now, I can't really predict exactly when we'll be reaching the critical mass of uncritical masses, but I can predict that we will continue to offer our antidote when we return again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And you are invited to join us. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. And color,
3: color it to black and white. Under the bad clothes, everything will be alright.
5: You know, they don't make us sit in the back of the bus anymore because they found out most of the accidents happen in the front. <laughs>